G'day mate, 40 here. I thought I would make a bunch of audio tracks of the best of my blog posts over the past couple of years. I was got up uh, late this morning, I just really slept in until about 5am. So typically during the week I get up by about 4am, but on Shabbos and today I got up about 5am, took a shower, and then while I was doing my morning exercises, I was kicking back listening to NS Lyons essay the temptations of Carl Schmidt and I thought you know how much I appreciate just being able to kick back and do exercises while listening to the best of NS Lions and then I thought what about my enormous audience out there who would love to be able to kick back and do their morning exercises while having the best of the Luke Ford blog just read to them aloud and then I thought why not why not unleash my dulcet tones so here we go. Here are some of my, my best my best blog posts over the past two years. Okay. January 26, 2023, LA first impressions after nearly three months down under. Flew into LAX this morning from Sydney. I am struck by how good LA smells. How much less comfortable life is here. Meaning there's so much more diversity, so we have less in common, so everyone is more uncomfortable unless they are just with their own tribe. I was struck by how Australia has a higher quality of life, but the most ambitious Australians will frequently leave Australia for the United States or Europe if they want to put their career ambitions first. Uh, LA's west side is reasonably similar to the eastern suburbs of Sydney, so you've got relatively low crime high real estate prices and generally fit, thin residents and not so much diversity when compared to Sydney's west side and south central LA. I was also struck by how I couldn't wait to get inside behind my locked doors after using public transport. While in Australia, I would usually decompress by going outside. And after three months without feeling fear in Australia, it rushed back in me as I made my way from LAX via the bus. So I noticed a lot more people on edge and tense and distrusting of each other in Los Angeles compared to Sydney. Uh, given LA's lack of social cohesion and social trust, I'm struck by how government seems to work about as efficiently as could be expected here. And I'm also struck by how I feel almost nothing in common with most of the people I encounter in Los Angeles. While I felt a connection with most everybody that I saw in most particularly the English language. So Australia, generally speaking, has one dominant culture. And the United States does not have one dominant culture. Sydney particularly does not have uh, uh, Los Angeles in particular or New York City or Chicago in particular does not have uh, one dominant culture. January 2nd blog post, the new fascism. In the West, we tend to use fascism to mean some political development we do not like. After 9-11, the West could have treated the threat of Al-Qaeda and other Islamic terrorists as primarily a law enforcement problem. Instead, the Bush administration decided to launch a war on terror and claimed without evidence that the country was hit on 9-11 because people like Osama bin Laden hated our freedom. Then we got all sorts of right-wing rhetoric about Islamo-fascism, which is 
a ridiculous term. Paul Godfrey is right about that. So instead of looking at Islamic terror as primarily a matter for law enforcement to deal with, the right in particular pushed to see Islamic terror as a civilizational war where the forces of freedom were doing battle with the forces of darkness. So when you place group conflicts in a prism of good versus evil, you do so at the price of destroying the humanity of your opposition. Your opposition are no longer human. Instead, they are embodiments of the forces of darkness, which means you can't compromise with darkness. You can't compromise with evil. You don't want to be like Neville Chamberlain, right, in 1938, compromising with evil, right? When you're in a battle of good versus evil, no compromise is possible. So back in 2002, 2003, there were people such as Mickey Kaus who said we should regard Islamic terror as primarily a law enforcement issue rather than a civilizational issue. And in retrospect, it, it seems that they were right. So now we have the Democrats, the mainstream media, our academic elites, our general elites engaged in a civilizational war against white nationalism and the new threat of fascism to our democratic institutions. So given that the overwhelming majority of white nationalists are law-abiding, given that the overwhelming majority of black nationalists or Chinese nationalists or Japanese nationalists are law-abiding, that might be a mistake. Why not look at the extreme right and the extreme left as primarily a law enforcement issue when those extremes in nationalism break the law? So social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says that when you make something sacred, you cannot see it clearly and you can't compromise effectively. So for the left, the battle against fascism is a sacred fight, just as the fight against Islamo-fascism became a sacred fight for the deluded right. All right, next uh, blog post, January 21, 2023. What should you expect from the news? If you get your expectations right, you will feel happier and you'll feel more of a sense of agency. You'll feel more of a sense of control in your life. So one of the best ways to do this is to develop increasingly sophisticated top-down models about how the world works and increasingly sophisticated bottom-up models about how you work and how individuals work. So one way to develop a more effective model of reality is to place individuals and institutions into their correct genre. For example, I don't expect politicians and salesmen and uh, TV advertisements to tell me the truth. I do expect everyone to pursue power and status. For example, professions such as doctor are continually seeking to expand their own reach and to reduce that of competitors such as nurses. So all professions want to expand and expand their power, their influence, and their reach, generally speaking, at the cost of other professions. Now, let's take someone like Ben Shapiro. He is a conservative pundit. I expect Ben to issue a torrent of words. He speaks very rapidly. I expect him to take the most conservative position possible at every issue that comes up for him. I do not expect him to know what he's talking about. I do not expect scholarship from Ben. I do not expect profundity or even truth. I do expect him to fulfill his audience's need for reliably conservative opinions. And that's what Fox News, by and large, dishes out. It tries to meet its audience's needs for reliably conservative perspectives on life. 
This is from the New Yorker podcast, The Political Scene. Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and this is a favorite part of my week when I'm joined by my colleagues, Evan Osnos and Jane Mayer. Hi, guys. Hey, Susan. Hi there. So, look, it's fair to say that all three of us have been absolutely hooked on the revelations about Fox News, which have been coming out of the Dominion Voting System's defamation lawsuit. The filings are a remarkable peak. You might even call it an X-ray at the inner workings of one of the most powerful TV networks in America, not to mention a window into Republican politics today and in the future. In a bombshell filing this week, we saw text messages and emails from inside Fox itself revealing what we suspected but didn't yet have proof of, that Fox hosts and executives didn't seem to believe what their own network was saying about the 2020 election. No less than Rupert Murdoch himself admitted as much in a deposition released this week. So the stakes here, of course, could not be higher for Fox News itself. Depending on the outcome of this case, they could be on the hook to pay something like $1.6 billion in damages that Dominion is asking. But I also think it's an important story about where politics are right now and looking ahead to the 2024 presidential contest. But Evan, let's start a little bit with a brief history. How did we even get to this point? Yeah, this is a case that if you were not paying attention to it at the beginning, you are definitely paying attention to it now. You know, this was filed in March of 2021 by Dominion Voting Systems. People remember that they became a kind of favorite target on Fox News in the aftermath of the election. They were being accused of all kinds of ridiculous and wild accusations. I mean, that they were being controlled by Venezuelan dictators. And, and, and uh, you know, as they laid out in their complaint at the time, they said this led to death threats. There were harassment within the company. But also, interestingly... They said that really this was about more than just them and their employees. It was about democracy. And, you know, at the time that sounded like, okay, maybe that's just sort of high-minded legal language that they're going for. But actually what we've since learned is this extraordinary narrative of what was going on inside the company. I mean, what's really remarkable about this case and the reason why I think it sort of demands so much attention, why we've devoted a whole show to it, is that it gives you the thing we almost never get, which is the conversation among the participants, behind the scenes, among the executives, among the hosts – actually saying out loud to one another questions about what do they really believe or how much does it matter what they believe? How much is it going to cost them? All of these issues about money, ideology, truth, lies, it's all right there. Well, the lawsuit, of course, comes out of the 2020 election and Donald Trump's refusal to accept defeat in it. Uh, And the question here is whether Fox's own coverage uh, contributed to the events of January 6, 2021. If you actually listened to Fox News in that period of time, Evan, what would you have heard? What are we actually talking about in this lawsuit? If you had turned on Fox News in that period and watched people like Lou Dobbs and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity, what you would have heard over and over again is that there is this potentially catastrophic crime being committed against the United States. Several days ago, Dominion came under heavy fire after allegations that their machines caused thousands of votes in one Michigan county to be switched from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Giuliani suggested that electronic vote counting is an invitation to fraud. And he's right. There has to be a bipartisan examination of everything that went wrong in this election. Many Americans do not believe that this election was fair. And make no mistake, every American has a right to feel that way. I feel that way. 
And that over and over, day after day, that was the message. And so you had people like Sidney Powell. Remind Who was she again? Sidney Powell was a lawyer who was very prominent in promoting some of the most wild and crazy theories about what these voting systems might have done. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden. Meanwhile, internally, inside Fox, you had people saying to one another that Sidney Powell, in Tucker Carlson's words, is lying, a crazy person, an unguided missile. But- okay, we're going out live right now across Rumble, across Odyssey, across Twitter, across my Facebook page, across my Facebook profile, and across YouTube. So here is my blog post once again from January 21, 2023. What should you expect from the news? What should you expect from Fox News? Okay, so I expect Crystal Light Classic Orange to taste a certain way, and it never lets me down. Most people regard their news the same way. They expect it to taste a certain way. And when it doesn't taste that way, it upsets them. So let's say I poured in some Crystal Light Classic Orange packets and mix it with water, and it tasted completely differently from what I expected. Uh, Still delicious, but instead of Crystal crystal Light Classic Orange, it gave me like grape flavor, right? I would be upset because I expect Crystal Light Classic Orange to taste a certain way. If you ever try to change, your family will be the first ones, generally speaking, to fight against it because they expect you to be a certain way. Your friends will often not react positively if you change because they expect you to be a certain way. We expect institutions, commercial products, uh, people, uh, groups, communities to be a certain way because that way we don't have to think about them. We don't have to expend energy. And so placing individuals, products, communities, news organizations into a certain genre, it saves us energy, right? We don't have to think about it as like, oh, we've just got them slotted in. So people are more complicated than drinks, but once you you put people in their correct genre, all right, they take less energy to to deal with and they're less likely to shock you. But you can become so wedded to your conception of who people are that reality starts to elude you. Now, I don't expect rabbis to be physicists. I don't expect accountants to be comics. I don't expect the homeless to be Shakespeare scholars. I don't expect uh, Fox News to be fair and balanced, right? On occasion, they might be, but I don't expect this, and so I don't get needlessly disappointed, right? I expect a nationally syndicated radio talk show host to be interesting to a 100 IQ audience. That's it. The money in being a pundit and being a talk show host and being, you know, a celebrity is giving a point of view on the world around him. The money is in being interesting, right? It's not in being right, right? The primary job for a TV news pundit, for a talk show host is to be interesting, That's where you get the audience to speak to a certain audience and give them a certain flavor that they're expecting. So we don't expect rabbis to be more moral than plumbers, right? We we shouldn't expect Orthodox Jews to be more moral than secular Jews. I don't expect conservatives to be more moral than liberals. And that's just my life experience. So what do I expect from the news? I learn to expect reporting on the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. And that's a quote from 
some 35-year-old media study. So the O.J. Simpson criminal trial resulted in a not guilty verdict. That was the passage of a bureaucratically recognized event through administrative procedures, and that verdict had absolutely nothing to do with the truth of what Simpson did. Right? Just because you get a royal commission or you get a congressional investigation or a New York Times investigation or you get an investigation by the Department of Social Security or the Food and Drug Administration doesn't mean that that investigation is accurate or has anything to do with the truth. What you get is the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. So New York Times front page on January 21, 2023 featured these news stories, tech layoffs, dancing with stairs in TV and film, uh, allies fail to reach agreement on providing German-made tanks to Ukraine. What is the Leopard 2 tank and how could it help Ukraine? After Dobbs, the Supreme Court ruling, Republicans wrestle with what it means to be anti-abortion. So all of these stories essentially proceed from democracies, even the Dancing with Stairs TV and film. It takes a bureaucracy to make a TV show. It takes a bureaucracy to make a movie. Frederica says, Odyssey is my favorite video sharing platform, but YouTube just works. Yes, uh, Odyssey, you get the most free speech on Odyssey. And for that, we should be grateful. So when we go to Odyssey and we go to BitChute, we should expect the widest possible expression of opinion. When we go to YouTube, we should expect a considerably homogenized expression of opinion, but probably more reliable and more aesthetically pleasing technology and places like rumble are somewhere in between so when i look at a weather report all right the, the weather tells me it's uh, about to rain here in la that is news filtered down from government satellites and government bureaucracies and then it may be Critified and transformed somewhat by private agencies who are trying to use it to make money, but the information primarily comes down from government satellites. So I wrote this blog post in Sydney. Now, frequently the weather is changing in Sydney. The weather report in Sydney would tell me it is dry when outside of my window it is raining. So if you simply take you know, the pronouncements of bureaucracies and government agencies as truth, you're not going to be well served. But the better the quality of the news, the more it vets the reports of bureaucracies with you know, real-life experiences. But we can't take this for granted with the news. So during the run-up to the Iraq invasion in 2003, uh -oh, Luke Cross says, I'm on chapter 14 of your autobiography at the moment. So I'm, I'm assuming, what, what years is that? Like, uh, I don't know, 2009 to 2012? Anyway, during the run-up to the Iraq invasion in 2003, the Bush administration pushed the narrative that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and the mainstream media largely let, went along with this. Now, aside from Knight Ritter, they did not do their due diligence. So just because powerful bureaucracies push a narrative, that does not mean it is true. So after George Floyd's death, May 25, 2020, various bureaucracies, including journalistic ones, pushed the false narrative that the police were systemically racist against blacks and that there was just outrageous numbers of police, you know, murdering black suspects when in reality, black criminal suspects were less likely to get shot by police than non-black suspects. And the police were far more likely to get shot by criminal suspects than the other way around. So 
all institutions and all individuals push narratives, right? And all these narratives deserve critical analysis, meaning place the narrative in its time and its place and understand the incentives and the rewards of the people who are pushing a particular narrative. Most people, much of the time, don't say what they mean, nor do they mean what they say. So we have to put everything they say and do in a proper context. The better the journalists, the better job they do at putting things in context. So when I check out the news, whether it's in the Los Angeles Times or on Fox News, I expect that information to primarily come from bureaucracies that have agendas. This information sometimes has truth and sometimes it is all false. And I can't expect journalists to adequately vet this information on the fly. The better you know a topic, the more inadequate news reporting on that topic becomes. So sometimes bureaucratic information filtered through journalists is more important than what I learn informally from my own lying eyes and from my own lying ears, as well as what I learn from friends, acquaintances, strangers, first-hand experience. Sometimes it is not. But the better you know a topic, the more likely you will realize that the news on that topic is seriously lacking. So the news is akin to the employee handbook that you get when you start a job. If you rely 100% on this handbook to guide your actions in the workplace, you'll be less effective than if you view this as a handbook, but not a pronouncement from God, that this is an official guide that may or may not match with the reality of life in your workplace. You'll be likely to be more effective if you primarily rely on what you see and what you hear in the workplace. And so too with news. If you primarily rely on the news for your understanding of the world, you'll be less effective in navigating life than if you primarily rely on what you see and what you hear informally. For example, a handful of stereotypes about group differences will be far more helpful to you than all the news and all the academic articles in the entire world claiming to smash stereotypes. Because stereotypes are generally true. So Richard Hananya in January of this year, published a provocative essay titled, Why the Media is Honest and Good. So my first question is not why, but where is the media honest and good? There are some times and places where I am honest and good. There are other times and places where I am dishonest and bad. Right? Nobody is good and honest, period. Right? Morality, competence, truth-telling, these are all domain-specific. So I only expect the media to be honest and good with reporting the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. And there's only a modest correlation between these events and the changes in the world. I expect the news will give me accurate sporting results, accurate rainfall results, stock market results, and jury trial results. But when, when it's happening in real time and say I'm following a game just on the ESPN app where it's just giving me a play-by-play, frequently they're getting it wrong. So the more time that the news has to correct its mistakes, obviously the more accurate it will be. So Richard Hananya's... Okay, when, when bureaucracies release information that is difficult to vet, right, such as that Iraq under Saddam Hussein in, say, 2003 had weapons of mass destruction, I don't expect journalists to be able to fact-check such claims quickly and effectively. Now, Richard Hanania's subhead reads, How to critique the press without devolving into nihilism. I mean, how many people really think that critiquing the press 
or critiquing individuals or critiquing institutions lead to nihilism. I don't think that is a problem. That's a bizarre subhead. So Richard begins, I tend to get annoyed by those around me. Okay, so you're a contrarian and probably below average in the personality trait of agreeableness. Richard writes, spend any time among conservatives and you'll before long realize that few things get them as riled up as a chance to attack the media. Yes, most people like to attack their enemies. If you love something, you will feel compelled to attack that which threatens it. So if you love traditional America, the traditional American nation, traditional American institutions, uh, traditional institutions such as marriage and the nuclear family, you are very likely to be highly incentivized to attack the mainstream media, which tends to be at war with our traditions. So in the West today, almost all our institutions are controlled by the left, and that leaves people on the right you know, eager to go on the attack. It's not that complicated. All right, back to the New Yorker podcast. We're hearing on there. Well, remember, she was the one who said we want to release the, the Kraken. Well, good, because... Whatever that is. Mythic monster. The Kraken. We're still waiting for the Kraken. Rudy Giuliani, he was another one who appeared often on the airwaves after the election. And he was on the airwaves. He was sort of allowed to spout his theories. And we have a machine, the Dominion machine, that's as filled with holes as Swiss cheese and uh, was developed to steal elections. Meanwhile, internally, Rupert Murdoch was describing Rudy Giuliani, and I'm reading here from, from this material, as saying, quote, really crazy stuff and damaging. But you sure weren't hearing that on Fox's Airways. Well, and what's amazing, of course, Gene, is that this is, you know, normally you don't have this kind of discovery in a case, right? The conventional wisdom is for a company like Fox, of course you don't let a case like this proceed. You would settle it, do anything rather than to have these embarrassing revelations about your own executives come public as part of a discovery process. So why didn't that happen, Gene? Well, Dominion is not accepting settlement. They, they, they actually want this dirty laundry out there. And I think it's to all of our benefit because what you're getting to see is the most extraordinary thing. It's kind of what we all suspected might be going on inside Fox. Um, you know, I've, I've spent months at times writing about Fox News, and you imagine that this might be what happens in the, you know, the, the C-suites there, but you could never really see it except for a, a case like this. And, and, and Dominion won't settle, won't take the money. They want to just keep pushing. And so we've actually got a uh, deposition from Rupert Murdoch himself. He's 92 years old, one of the most powerful people in the world. And even he has to sit there and answer the questions. And and wow, it was really something. Well, I know. So, OK, so here's our own. It's basically like a real life episode of succession mm. uh, that we're seeing here uh, in Rupert Murdoch's own words. There's so many details. I have to say, like, it's almost 200 pages yeah, this week's uh, filing. The, the other filing was well over 100 pages. I, I've sort of gobbled up all of it. I want to ask everybody, what is their favorite? So I just uh, downloaded the Dominion filings. Haven't read them yet. Okay, Richard Hanani writes, Hatred of the media is not simply a conservative pastime, however, but is found among others who feel alienated from establishment centrism, including critics of American foreign policy, socialists, and tech entrepreneurs like Balaji Srinivasan and Elon Musk. So the media's main sources for news are our established institutions, which tend to be dominated by the left. Richard writes, in this essay, I am going to argue that everyone is wrong and the media is actually good and honest. You should be glad it exists, admire those who work in the industry and hope for its continued influence and success. Well, the American news media, for all its faults, is more objective and more ethical than, say, European and Latin American news media. 
uh, European news media is you know far ahead of the you know the ethics and objectivity produced by Latin America. Scott Alexander recently said that the media very rarely tells explicit lies. My position is more extreme than his. It's that while the American media has serious flaws, it is one of the most honest, decent, and fair institutions designed for producing and spreading truth in human history. So my response is the media is not designed for producing and spreading truth. It is designed for producing and spreading information about the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. That is not co-equal with truth. If Richard Hanani is right, then the lives of people who do not follow the news would be significantly impoverished. That's not my anecdotal impression. I know people who pay very little attention to the news. Many of the smartest people I know pay very little attention to the news. Their lives do not seem diminished by that. They do not seem to be less effective at navigating reality. Rather, if I had to come down one side or the other, my anecdotal impression is that the people who pay the least attention to the news are the most effective at navigating reality which would not be true if what Richard Hananya says is true, right? Richard Hananya claims that the news media is one of the most honest, decent, and fair institutions designed for producing and spreading truth in all of human history. I think that's a dramatic overstatement. Richard writes, like any institution, the press has to be judged according to realistic benchmarks, not simply criticized because it is imperfect or makes mistakes. Well, one benchmark you can judge the news media by is what was is coverage like, say, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, say, compared to today. If you judge the mainstream media by historical standards or compare it to anything that competes with it for influence, the right-wing press, popular influences, social media, foreign sources of news, institutions of American journalism come out extremely well. Well, I think one would be far more effective at navigating reality and have a far more profound understanding of how the world works if one simply read Steve Saylor's blog and didn't pay attention to the news media. So what competes with news for influence? Uh, clergy, right? If you have a wise clergyman, he may be able to give you, you know, insights into reality, insights into life that are, that are more valuable than what you get from the New Republic. You have scholarship, you have books, you have podcasts, you have talk radio, you have Fox News, you have bloggers, social media, community, religion, friends, hobbies. So depending on who you choose, you are just as likely to be better off than worse off compared to people who rely on CNN and its equivalents, right? If you listen to Joe Rogan or you watch Fox News instead of reading the New York Times, you're going to be worse off. If you read Steve Saylor instead of watching CNN, you're going to be way ahead of the game. So news is a subset of the attention genre. It is a subset of the business genre. News makes money, or it justifies its public subsidy by getting your attention. And news operators have few qualms about hyping, which is just a subset of lying to get that. Most journalists have no problem with dramatic, you know, hyperbolic overstatement to try to get your attention. They think that's perfectly valid, but that's just a subset of lying. Nope better off taking in, you know, the hype. What news organizations dish out is primarily bureaucratic events. The president said this, the commerce department said this, the police say the NFL staged these games and the results are. First responders on the scene say public health official state. Right? When you simply ref 
report official statements, you're not likely to get sued. So that's a good business model. When you're breaking news, when you're going beyond official statements from bureaucracies, you're much more likely to get sued. So, so I agree with Richard Hanani and other news defenders to the extent that the news is good at reporting what official sources tell them. Reporters are usually good stenographers. When reporting goes beyond stenography, its quality varies. So I would disagree with Richard Hanania and company. If they make claims for the excellence of news beyond stenography and attention-grabbing presentation and are beyond individual examples of excellence of putting public pronouncements in an appropriate context. Richard Ananya writes, there is a major exception when it comes to the holy trinity of liberalism, that is, topics having to do with race, gender, and sexual orientation. But even here, the problem is not so much that the press is blinded by ideology. The facts they give you, even on these sensitive topics, are usually correct. It's simply that the interpretation of these facts is wrong. Right, when you're aware of the narrative that anyone is pushing, including the news, it is easy to, or easier to disentangle the facts. Okay, my screen time was up 26% last week for an average of three hours and 24 minutes a day on my iPhone. Right, when you're aware of the narrative, it is easier to disentangle the facts from the spin. We were not born yesterday. We did not evolve to be gullible. John Smith says, Ron Wins reads the news a lot. Luke Ford competes with the news for me. They're more current affairs for me. Tech Lee says he doesn't watch or read the news. Richard Hanani is a libertarian, but he's red-pilled on HBD. Richard Hanani writes, People who complain about the media tend to implicitly judge it by the standard of perfection, while either offering no alternative or arguing that people instead listen to sources that are even worse. Well, there are valuable alternative sources of news, such as your own eyes and your own ears and your own real-life experience. So, Professor Sandra Brahman, published in 1984. Most breaking news in Latin America, and it's true, most breaking news in Europe, in Australia, in Japan, in the United States, in Canada, in Mexico, most breaking news is of little real significance. She's writing here about Latin America. This is because in this area, the forms, right? News excels in publishing the form. News excels in publishing what is being displayed in the shadows on the cave walls, right? So news specializes in the form, the elections, the drawing up of constitutions, family life, the words used in political doctrine, right? These are all highly observed and cherished, but they frequently do not mirror the substantive life of the society. So the New York Times, when they covered Latin America, right, Sandra Brahman, would, would cover Latin America through governmental bureaucracies. They would collect official statements for translation for the mass audience of the New York Times. So almost all information sources cited are formal bureaucratic sources in the capital city. Now, by contrast, a new journalist such as Joan Didion embodied the methods of a reporter who writes from an individual locus of consciousness. So most news journalism takes the narrative form of a public locus of consciousness. Now, sometimes the individual locus of consciousness will give you a more profound understanding of reality. Sometimes a public locus of consciousness will give you a more profound understanding of reality. You need both. So Joan Didion's procedure can be summarized 
as an attempt to put herself into as many different situations as possible. Her information sources include facts as received by any of her senses from any direction. And if you do this, if you put yourself into as many different situations of life as possible, you will gain a more profound understanding of reality. Though Joan Didion did use official information sources, they were not considered the most reliable. Comments at the corner drugstore were considered as valuable as governmental pronouncements, if not more so. And that's just as true in the United States of America. You can learn just as much at the corner liquor store as you can from a report from the Commerce Department at times. Sometimes you'll be better served by paying attention to the governmental bureaucratic report. John Smith says, I agree with Richard Hanania that the facts in the news are usually right. It is the interpretation that is bogus and convoluted. John says that my view of the news is that of a lot of people in former Eastern Bloc countries. John Berkshire says, Richard Hanania is constantly trying to own the conservatives. Yes, he is low in agreeableness and wants to take on you know, competitors for the, for the, the mantle of the uh, most profound, important, insightful, conservative pundit. So the New York Times identification of news pegs derives from the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. Thus, the New York Times focused on such formal events as the March 28, 1982 elections and changes in land distribution plans. Joan Didion remarks, however, the phrases such as land reform and the initialization of a democratic political process are so remote as to render them hallucinatory. Yes. So many bureaucratic pronouncements, many pronouncements from people in power are so remote from reality as to render them hallucinatory, particularly with regard to group differences. Elsewhere, Joan Didion comments about the importance to everyone of maintaining such symbolic forms for the sake of the United States, meaning getting United States subsidies. For her, attention is focused on the non-existence of any solid reality and the ubiquitousness of death and terror. So what the New York Times limbed as the important events in El Salvador, Joan Didion describes as illusory symbols. And that would be just as true for the United States today. What the New York Times limbed as the most important events in the United States and the world between 2017 and, and 20, uh, the end of the beginning of 2020, R Russiagate was the most important story in the world, and Russiagate turned out to be a big fat nothing. Right? It, every time I tried to read about Russiagate during those years, I, I, my mind, I would just get a headache. It was just so boring. There was so much emphasis placed on uh, Russian activists spending $2,000 on Facebook ads. So you would have been better off paying zero attention to Russiagate, except as an example for how deluded the mainstream media is. So what's on the front page of the New York Times frequently has absolutely no relation to what's important in, in the world or the United States today. So what the mainstream media describes as the most important events in the world today uh, sometimes they are, just as frequently they're not. So Raymond Bonner, New York Times correspondent, displayed a dual allegiance. He wrote from both his own individual locus of consciousness and from the public locus of consciousness of the New York Times. He did so by describing the physical horrors and social and political chaos, which are the facts of his own experience, as well as the procedural viewpoint of his employer and the Salvadoran and U.S. governments. 
In the latter case, however, his reporting revealed the failures of norm normative bureaucratic processes. Right? Bureaucratic processes, like individual processes, are fallible. With the subsequent removal of Raymond Bonner from El Salvador, New York Times reporting from that country has reported those bureaucratic processes as successes, adhering completely to the procedures of objective journalism in reports of administrative events, meaning just taking public pronouncements as gospel truth. Joan Didion, on the other hand, wrote solely from her own individual locus of consciousness about a society which wouldn't resolve into a sensible pattern. So this report is strengthened by her own history as a new journalist. Joan Didion's reputation was largely built on her ability to clarify the myriad ambiguities of the 1960s. So the keynote of her writing about El Salvador is terror and the desperation that results from the dissolution of tenable social forms. Back to the New Yorker podcast. These damning details. I know my own, but Evan, you, you jump in first. You know, I think there was a particularly telling moment that was right before the January 6th insurrection. And at one point, Rupert Murdoch understood that there was this opportunity for Fox to do something, to kind of put out the message across their devoted viewers where they could change the narrative, where they could say, you know, what if Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram all got on the air and said something like, the election is over and Joe Biden won. And he said it at the time, he said, you know, he hoped that it would go a long way to stop the Trump myth that the election was stolen. By the way, that is him acknowledging that it was a myth. And yet the reaction he gets from Suzanne Scott, the CEO, is, and I'm quoting here, that those hosts are, quote, privately, they are all there, meaning they agree that this is a myth. But, quote, we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. And so they made no such statement. That's an extraordinary thing. I, I, you know, I also feel like we have to say Fox's claim here is that they were exercising their First Amendment and that what they were doing was simply reporting on the news, as wild as those claims were. And what you get in this case is this line-by-line -line refutation of that argument. I mean, what you can see is there's a calculation. The people running Fox have no compunction about lying. They are trying to figure out how many lies do they need to tell in order to keep their audience so that they don't lose the ratings. They're afraid of losing the ratings. All right, so so what's okay, let's go to the chat. John Berkshire says the media has a certain narrative based on their liberal ideology. Yes, we all see the world as we are, not as the world it is. They distort the facts to fit them into the narrative, but they don't mention inconvenient facts to begin with. Media doesn't portray reality, it creates a reality of its own. It only creates a reality of its own for those who are predisposed to buy into that media-created reality. They don't impose it on those not so disposed. Frederico says, world changes, don't watch the news. Colin Liddell says, Russian bot army boosted Trump and key alt-right content. But how significant was it? I think to the extent that the alt-right was significant was because it met very real needs for more open discussion about taboo topics. Luke, what do you think about the Keith Woods-Nick Fuentes collaboration? I think they're both uh, smart, bright, savvy, articulate, eloquent young men. And if they're able to work together, I think they'll provide compelling content. I, I don't expect... You know, major insights into reality, but I, I think they'll produce entertaining, compelling content. 
So back to my blog post. In 1997, I noticed the porn stars in the San Fernando Valley were regularly testing HIV positive. By April of 1998, I had concluded that Mark Wallace was the likely patient zero of the outbreak that had infected at least a dozen women. I did not get this information from official sources. My unofficial sources were superior to what the official sources were saying. In 2007, I reported that the mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, had stopped wearing his wedding ring and that his marriage was over. I did not get this from official sources. I got this tip from a Los Angeles journalist who couldn't publish it in his newspaper. And when I checked it out and it held up, I published the story on my blog. Now, the Los Angeles Times followed up several days later and got a denial from an official source, Mayor Villaraigosa. A few weeks later, however, it was apparent that the mayor was lying and that I was right. So I have been blogging since 1997. My biggest stories have generally come from unofficial sources. In 2004, based on unofficial sources, I reported that Rabbi Aaron Tendler of Los Angeles was under investigation of sexual misconduct that dated back decades. Now, he stayed in his position, and everyone told me I was crazy for reporting something untrue. 2006, I reported on the specific experiences of two women who, while in high school, were the subject of Rabbi Aaron Tendler's advances. Once I did that, once I had that specificity, then the rabbi resigned. So for years, my unofficial sources have been more accurate than the official sources. So August 6, 2022, I blogged, news is what bureaucracies report, right? If you can't base your news on a bureaucratic report, you're swimming outside the normal news business because you can't normally get sued for simply reporting what a bureaucracy reports. So there's a terrific 2022 book by Paul Pringle, Bad City, Peril and Power in the City of Angels. And he writes, but a key line in the Pasadena police report was not redacted. The one listing witnesses to the overdose entered there was the name of a single witness. Puliafito Carmen Anthony, right? This is the dean of the USC Medical School. His relationship to the overdose victim was described as friend. The rest of the line noted that he was a 65-year-old white male. Finally. I now had an official report that placed Pulio Fito at the scene of the overdose. The most important element of the tip I had received from an unofficial source was now confirmed. So the pressure on USC to tell the truth about the dean was about to become crushing because he finally got a line in an official source. Now he had a news story, right? He had the information before from unofficial sources, but not until he got a line in an official government report did he have what he regarded and what most journalists would regard as a news story. John Smith says the alt-right punched above its weight in terms of influence. Yes, and why did it do so? Because it met a need for more open discussion. It is undeniable that Nick Fuentes got a lot of the Trump right to talk about immigration from a racial angle. Or he articulated what people were already saying privately. He publicly articulated it. Right, so one of the classic reports on government bureaucracy and government power was published in 1974. It's a 1,200-page biography, which I recently finished by Robert Caro, called The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York. So according to Wikipedia, as a reporter for Newsday in the early 1960s, Robert Caro wrote a long series about why a proposed bridge across Long Island Sound from Rye to Oyster Bay, championed by Robert Moses, would have been inadvisable, would have required piers so large as to disrupt tidal flows in the sound. Caro believed that his work had influenced even the state's powerful governor, Nelson Rockefeller, to reconsider the idea 
Kelly saw the state's assembly vote overwhelmingly to pass a preliminary measure for the bridge. That was one of the transformational moments of my life, Cairo said years later, led him to think about Robert Moses for the first time. I got in the car and drove home to Long Island, and I kept thinking to myself, everything you've been doing is baloney. Really, in a sense, you know, most everything that the news media reports is just baloney. You've been writing under the belief that power in a democracy comes from the ballot box. And that's what the news media consistently tells you, that power in a democracy comes from the ballot box. But here is a guy, Robert Moses, who has never been elected to anything, who has enough power to turn the entire state of New York around, and you don't have the slightest idea how he got it. So much of governmental power does not derive from the ballot box. So according to this biography, Robert Moses was the most powerful man in New York City between 1930 and 1960, but the news media, with few exceptions, never investigated or questioned his reign. Why not? Because Robert Moses would not make public the documents he used. So the news relies on public documents, and without these public documents, there is no news. I broke big stories because I did not depend upon public documents, but this also opened me up to five libel suits. So Robert Caro wrote in this biography, the secrecy cloaking Triborough. So Triborough is a uh, government uh, bureaucracy. Also protected its recipients because the secrecy protected the man who proffered that large jest. So Triborough was the development of a government authority to do a particular task. Since 1924, newspapers had practically unanimously been describing Robert Moses as a man above politics and deals, a man whose name it would be ridiculous to mention in the same article with any hint of payoff or scandal. After World War II, the New York Post, with publisher Dorothy Schiff taking a more active interest in a paper, began to question not only Moses's ends, but also his means. And they asked to inspect Tri Burroughs' records, and when Robert Moses refused to open them, they took him to court. But the courts upheld Robert Moses' refusal. So without these public records, the New York Post and other journalists could not document their suspicions about the flaws in the Robert Moses image. And for a solid decade after World War II, despite the wishes of an occasional reporter or editor, no other newspaper attempted seriously to dig behind that image. So Robert Moses' personal reputation was reinforced by that of the institution with which it had become blended. So after, as before the war, the public was being informed by Robert Moses and by the press in a single six-year period, 1946 to 1951, there were more than 1,400 editorials in New York newspapers on this theme. The public authorities right, were not only prudent, practical, businesslike, efficient, but non-political outside of politics and therefore honest. Authorities are free from political considerations. Right? They are free from the dead hand of partisanship and bureaucracy. This is what the New York Times and the Herald New York Herald Tribune were saying. So Robert Moses' reputation, that of the institution, Triborough, he did so much to bring to maturity, was the final guarantee that the secrecy of its books would remain secret. A politician considering accepting a Triborough fee could be assured that some neophyte legislator ever attempt to open Triborough's books. Robert Moses would assail the attempt as an attempt by a politician to interfere with an agency whose independence he didn't like and to get his hands on some of its funds, that the press would then back up that argument and that the public would be conditioned by years of praise for Robert Moses and for public authorities to accept it. See, politicians could be sure that no public official solicitous of his political future would lay that future on the line in a fight with a living legend. 
that no one could disprove Robert Moses's reputation without first opening Triborough's books, and no one could open Triborough's books without first disproving Robert Moses's reputation. So any public official thinking about accepting a Triborough retainer could feel certain that his own reputation would be safe in the shadow of Moses. Robert Moses had $750 million of authority money to spend. In the ultimate analysis, it was the public's money, but Robert Moses was not accountable to the public. He was not accountable to anyone. He had $750 million to give away, and no one would ever know to whom he gave it. And this made politicians and public officials, particularly those interested in retainers, which they would procure through law firms, so it was all legal and appeared above board, made all these people all the more anxious to make sure that he gave some of this largesse to them. Such politicians and public officials noted another fact about Robert Moses's money, which made it even more attractive than the cities. Robert Moses could give this money to whomever he wished. So was the media honest and good in its reporting on Robert Moses when Robert Moses had power? No, they honestly served as his stenographers and lapdogs. Did they do a good job of placing his actions and words in context? No. Informal channels did a better job of informing people about how New York City worked than the newspapers. So Steve Saylor notes that Joe Biden is the second Trumpiest man in politics. Right, that sort of context is probably more useful analysis of our current president than anything the New York Times offers. Back to the New Yorker podcast. Okay, my favorite, I think the iconic phrase that came out of this from my standpoint was Rupert Murdoch saying, when they put on my pillow man and he goes there and tells Wow, Colin Liddell has a great question here. Look, would you say the Nazi party is just part of a process of German people more freely expressing themselves? Yes, I would say that in a particular context. The particular context was that Germany at this time was beset by a rising totalitarian communist empire on its border and the hostility of its neighbors to the West. And so Germany was forced into a position where it had to choose a total government solution. It's either going to be the total government solution of communism, which would then lead to a civil war, or the total government solution of Nazism, which would not immediately lead to a civil war. So given the context that it was in, it made sense that the German people increasingly sympathized with the Nazi party and overwhelmingly gave it its support up until the beginning of World War II. So Adolf Hitler and the Nazis enjoyed overwhelming support once they took power because of the situation in which the German people were in, threatened by a rising totalitarian Soviet Union communism power that was just rising, rising, rising to power right on their doorstep. Asterisk lies about the election. It's not red. It's not blue. It's green. What we are hearing is the head of Fox News saying, hey, it's not about helping one side or the other in politics. It's about the money. You know, and he even, I think, if you look at this, he thought that was going to be something of a defense. He's trying to say, well, you know, it's not really malice. We weren't trying to push one side for political views. It's just a business. In fact... And Colin Dell says, people who underestimate Russian meme game do so at their own peril. Okay, so let's say 
just for the sake of discussion here, I'm going to take the position that Russian meme game has no importance, which is an overstatement of what I believe, but I think that meme game is vastly overestimated in importance in, in general, not just vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So someone accords no importance to the Russian meme game, what peril are they then placed? I don't see the significant peril for underestimating Russian meme game or any meme game. But I am not a big believer in soft power. I am a big believer in the power of the gun, right? The power of bureaucracies with weapons at their disposal. And I am a big power in the power of the dollar and the American economy. I'm a big believer in hard military power and hard economic power. Compared to hard military power and hard economic power, meme power doesn't matter. So there was, I think, a terrific New Yorker cartoon that shows uh, two Russian tanks uh, after conquering Poland, right? So the I've forgotten the exact location, some some river or some prominent location. It just shows that that Russia's conquered Poland in 2022, and there the two tank commanders are smoking a cigarette after their successful conquest of Poland, and one Russian tank commander says to the other, "But we lost the information war." Okay, so compared to the shooting war, the information war doesn't count much. Compared to the power of nuclear weapons and guns and armies and ships and planes, meme power doesn't count for much. Compared to the power of economics, having billions of dollars in resources, the, the power of the American dollar, uh, meme power counts for almost nothing. That statement from him just shows just the pure venality of this operation. Well, you know, what's so remarkable, I have, I have a different... The pure venality of this operation, all right? That's very easy when you're not depending upon maintaining an audience for, for your income, all right? Everyone's pretty much blind when it comes to what is necessary to, you know, keep getting paid. So Fox News d depends upon, you know, an enormous audience to, to make money. The, the New Yorker isn't in the same situation, right? The New Yorker does not depend upon, you know, publishing compelling content, keeping those subscriptions flowing in. Murdoch quote, because it really is amazing to hear Murdoch himself, right? And, and to hear him saying this. And the thing that is incredible to me is that he has an email uh, just a couple of days after January 6th to a former Fox executive in which he says very clearly, well, we're done with Donald Trump. And he uses, he says, we're, quote, pivoting, unquote. But he says, we want to make Donald Trump a non-person. That's, quote, a non-person, yeah. which is just... And Colin Liddell says, meme power counts for everything if it tilts America into isolationism, at least from a Russian point of view. Okay. Foreign policy in the United States of America is not tilted or even hardly at all affected by popular sentiment. Right. American foreign policy is determined by an elite. A and there is largely a bipartisan consensus with regard to foreign policy. The Democrats were pretty much as aligned behind the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, as were the Republicans. So the United States elite 
has determined that American lives will be risked to support Taiwan. And it really doesn't matter if 80% of Americans are opposed to military, American military intervention to defend Taiwan against the Chinese attack. America's foreign policy elite have already decided that American lives you know, will be put at risk, that we will fight to protect Taiwan. So the, the public only has a very limited ability to shape foreign policy because there's usually not much of a significant difference between the two parties and the, the public only gets to vote every two to four years. So let me go back to this. Mean power counts for everything if it tilts America into isolationism. Okay, what will determine whether America is more globalist or isolationist is one, events, my dear boy, events, and two, what the elites decide. All right, elites dominate American foreign policy. Foreign policy is way too complicated for you know, the popular will to express itself. So the American president, for example, has all the foreign policy power of King George III had for England in the 18th century. He can go to war unilaterally. He can send off nuclear weapons. Like he can you know, send troops anywhere. He can kill any non-American in the world, right? So the ability of the American people to shape foreign policy is considerably attenuated. Uh, America will never retreat into isolationism from, from the perspective of 2023. Now, it can become less globalist, but there, there are enough interests overseas. What America has done is start to draw its circles of influence in, in a more more restrictive manner. The United States really only needs Mexico and it's nice to have good relations with AUKUS. Australia, Japan, India, Korea to slow down and limit the rise of China. So that's a bonus, but the United States does not need Europe, right? The United States gets less of its economy from trade than any other major power. All right, so the United States is not, you know, particularly incentivized to be the global power it once was, but we do need Mexico for their relatively, you know, low wage ability to, you know, manufacture goods for us. Uh, Mexico is just, you know, the perfect perfect fit for what what the Americans need, and having good relations with Australia, Japan, and to a lesser extent, uh, Korea and, and India is a, is a nice bonus for, for dealing with a rising China. But uh, other than that, America doesn't really need anyone else in the world today. But we will strategically use people for our own use entities for our own purposes. So if there's some like valuable mineral or metal, you know, in, you know, darkest Africa, uh, we will secure it if, if that's what we need. Luke says, what makes you seriously think young Americans will want to die in a war against China? I don't. My point is that it's not, it's not a choice. American foreign policy elite have already made the choice that we, that we Americans will die to protect uh, Taiwan. Foreign policy is overwhelmingly something decided by the elites. 
the, the people have very little influence. It's very attenuated over foreign policy. Colin Liddell says, Trump showed the all-powerful elites that U.S. overextension was getting to be a far harder sell. Meme game played its part there. Yes. So meme game, meme game gets its power when it makes explicit those things that you're not supposed to talk about, right? There are whole sectors of life in every single society that has ever existed where you are expected to publicly deny reality. And so with regard to group differences, American interests, right? Meme power gets, gets its power from making explicit that which is publicly implicit, the things that you're not supposed to say out loud. So Donald Trump, you know, got, got power from, from memes because he was able to, you know, tap into uh, latent American nationalism and an awareness of group differences that uh, polite people in polite society wanted to downplay. So memes can, memes can, yeah, develop power when they make the implicit explicit, when important things that need to be discussed are not getting discussed until you've got some cutting edge meme that makes people go, oh yeah, that's absolutely right. And so that can affect public opinion. So there is some power in memes. And you could make an argument, given how slim Trump's victory was in 2016 and how slim his defeat was in 2020, then, yeah, I could see memes making a 1% difference in an election outcome. I don't think much more than that, but a 1% difference, right? Just uh, 80,000 votes going either way, Trump would not have been elected in 2016 or he would have been re-elected in 2020. Colin Liddell says, meme game practically won the Vietnam War. And I think what won the Vietnam War is that the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese had the attitude, we live here, and so they were willing to sacrifice more than the South Vietnamese and the Americans and Australians who were supporting the South Vietnamese. The North Vietnamese had more of the support of the people, the people who actually lived there, they're willing to make more sacrifices. Luke Croft says, in the age of post-national globalism, what incentives can they offer for young Americans to die in wars? We are not living in an age of post-national globalism. We are living in an age of nationalism. Nationalism is the most important political force in the world today and has been so for approximately 200 years. There was a, a Cold War and an age of, of globalism between, say, 1945 and approximately 2008. Right? That, was, that was the exception. But overall, the last 200 years, nationalism has been the most powerful political force in the world and it shows no signs of decreasing. Since patriotism is dead in the younger generations, they will still be susceptible to nationalism. It's just that the form, the expression of nationalism uh, may, may vary between younger people, middle-aged people, and older people. But uh, if you go to a sporting event, all right, who is the most likely to take up fists and get into a fight over a sporting event. Young people are old people, obviously young people. So that, that soccer fan allegiance, that European soccer hooliganism is an outlet for nationalism. And it can very easily transmute into proper nationalism. 
but uh, people, you know, are willing to fight for their favorite teams, for their favorite, you know, city. And that very easily turns into nationalism. When it comes to Vietnam, the elite made a 180-degree U-turn. Yes, but they made that 180-degree U-turn not based on the sublimity of the rhetoric against the Vietnam War, not based on the profundity of the philosophy against the Vietnam War, not based on the transcendent religious arguments about the Vietnam War, not based on the piercing insights of morality about the Vietnam War. The elites made a 180-degree U-turn with regard to the Vietnam War almost entirely because of facts on the ground, because of events, because the Vietnamese, in particular the North Vietnamese, felt much more dedication to their government than the South Vietnamese felt to theirs and were therefore willing to sacrifice more for their team than the South Vietnamese and the Americans were willing to sacrifice for their team. People usually win when they're fighting on their home turf. If you're going on the off offense, Clausewitz makes this point, you need at least three times as many forces as defenders at a minimum to successfully go on an offense. And if you're fighting on your home soil because you live there, right, you're going to be much more dedicated than someone flying in from the other side of the world. Is there a common American identity young people are still willing to die for? That will depend upon events, my dear boy, events. If we had another 9-11, you would see young people joining up, willing to die for the country. Luke Cross says, if things carry on the way they are, Americans will have to increasingly rely on mercenaries to do the fighting. I don't think they will. There is a long tradition, particularly in the South, of you know, signing up for the military. Our best military officers have come from the South. There is a strong latent American nationalism. It just needs events to explode. It's like you may have a strong sex drive, but you may walk around not thinking about your sex drive very much. Then you suddenly get into a situation where you can exercise your sex drive with an attractive young woman. And what that which was latent in you will suddenly become blatant. Luke doesn't realize that a lot of South Vietnamese also live there. Yes, I realize that they live there, but they did not have the same commitment and dedication to their government, to their organized form of life that the North Vietnamese had to theirs. And they were certainly not as effective. If the Chinese invaded Taiwan, would young multicultural Americans be willing to enlist in their millions? It would not require expanding enlistment. It would just simply require the placing of drones uh, of you know various high technology forms of warfare in and around Taiwan. Right? We're, we're unlikely to get into a ground war with China. What we're very likely to do is get into some kind of shooting war where you know, both sides are deploying a lot of drones and high-tech. Where is my cut on the spoils of war? All I want is attention, bro. I don't need to, I don't need my cut from the spoils of war. I just want your attention so that I can share these valuable moral insights.
Back to the New Yorker podcast. Such a cutting uh, statement by Murdoch. But I think it's also, it reflects something that puts us right back in the incredibly awkward, tense politics of the moment for Republicans right now and in the aftermath of January 6th. They want to pivot, at least the establishment, the Murdochs of the GOP. They want to pivot from Donald Trump, but they can't. They can't. You know, they created this monster uh, and they can't figure out how to extricate themselves in part because of Jane's quote, the green. The green uh, is a problem because they they made an audience of Trump junkies, and then the Trump junkies don't want to stick with the news channel. They prefer Trump's alternate news, and it's just it's such an amazing I mean, thing. All, I, I totally agree. I mean, but in all this time, people have been trying to figure out: is Trump really the power that's running Fox, or is um, Murdoch the power that's running Trump? It turns out it's not really either. It's the base. It's the viewers who they have created. No, no, no. You know where the power is. The power is in the situation, right? The situation in the United States since about uh, 1996 is that there is an enormous hunger for a non-liberal perspective on the news, in particular for a non-liberal TV news perspective. And Fox News has become successful to the degree that it meets that hunger, right? I hunger for something interesting to drink that doesn't have sugar in it. And, uh, Classic crystal light orange meets my hunger. But I am impaled on the horns of a dilemma. No matter how much I love a cool, cold, crystal light, classic orange drink, when I drink it, I then get hives and I'm itchy at night. So I love the drink, but I have to put up with the hives and the itchiness at night. So I noticed in Australia where there was a week or two where I wasn't drinking crystal light, classic orange, I wasn't itchy at night. No hives at night. I didn't need to go buy ointment to put on all my itchiness at night. Colin Liddell says, Luke Ford buys the Jane Fonda boomer myth that the commies were popular in Vietnam. War was lost by a loss of will after memes undermined America's brittle will. It's not a matter of whether the communists were popular or not. It's a matter of were people who were, by and large, preferring the North Vietnamese model more willing to fight and sacrifice than people who preferred the South Vietnamese slash American model. And overwhelmingly, the Vietnamese were far more willing to sacrifice for the North Vietnam model than the South Vietnam model. So it's not a matter of popularity because it's a, it's a choice between two options. There are really only two options. You had the corrupt South Vietnamese American model, you had the communist North Vietnamese model. The communist model attracted more support, more willingness to sacrifice, and a more effective use of resources to pursue that aim. Luke stopped drinking gay beverages and his monkeypox went away. So Colin Liddell regards Vietnam as 100% a total meme victory. So I think in terms primarily of hard power, so I just think in terms of military might, economic might, I think that's what rules the world, right? People want sex and power. People want to spend time with their own tribe. People want their tribe to be strong and safe and to prosper. And people don't care about our group, so... Military might, economic might, tribal in-group allegiances rule the world. That's my bias.
who they have spun up into such an angry mob that they then have to keep catering to them for fear that they'll lose the viewers and then start losing money. Well, and I, I mean, I the other the, the, along those lines, along with the it's not red, it's not blue, it's green. I, I, I will never forget. I think the the the, the quotes from Tucker Carlson, who's absolutely in a panic about the possibility that Fox's stock price is falling mm. because after the they've called the election honestly in Arizona for Biden, who's won the state, viewers are getting mad and they're going over to a rival right-wing news operation, Newsmax. And Tucker Carlson, who goes out every night looking like he's so tough and, you know, bullying everybody else, it turns out he's in a meltdown over the possibility that they might earn less money because they're losing their couple of their viewers. It's it's it, it's not so shocking or surprising. We're all very tough in certain circumstances. And when circumstances change, we all become a bunch of pussies, right? We're all vulnerable. There's no one, no group, no individual, no community that is invulnerable. Okay. January 24, 2023, I read a blog post, The Bright Side of Fame. So I just listened to a podcast on the dark side of the fame, and I started thinking, I've had some fame. It was Overall, a positive experience, I think, because I don't know the full extent of the price that I paid for it. So I received, for my fame, I received some free travel. I received some easy money. I got to do more of what I was good at. I sensed the world opening up to me. I got access to where I wanted access, such as interview subjects. I expanded my social circle. So I made up for the losses of people who turned their back on me because they despised the things that I said online. Successful people in my space treated me like a peer. I filled up with energy and I was able to then pass that energy on to others. My opportunities to do good as well as to do bad expended. I noticed that when I was famous, if I just gave somebody my undivided attention, that seemed to make you know other people happy. I had new experiences which prompted me to have new thoughts and new feelings that would not have been available otherwise. So I got to experience more of life. And there are times and places I got preferential treatment because I was famous. So the first time I realized I could do extraordinary things was a day in second grade when my second grade class sat on a bridge over Dora Creek in Kurumbang, Australia. We were told to look at the ghostly trees under the water and to write about them. So I jotted down a few words. I became convinced I was doing the assignment all wrong, but I had to turn in my paper anyway. And then I was surprised when the teacher said I'd written something great. She read it aloud to the class, and I noticed that my words affected people, including adults. So I realized that I had an ability with words that even adults would appreciate. I was eight years old. And I've never doubted my writing ability since then, even when I got C's in English class. Now, I don't feel like listing off the dark sides of fame for me because I prefer to focus on the good things in my life. I don't spend much time in regret. So I try to use the bad things that have happened to me and the bad things that I did to others as prompts for me to do good things, including cleaning up my side of the street, living in reality of my own flawed humanity. Now, according to this podcast, the dark side of fame includes difficulty trusting people, a has-been syndrome because the flame of fame always dims, acquired situational narcissism, like when everyone's like looking up to you, it's very easy to become narcissistic, the brain gets addicted to a high level of neurological stimulation and hungers for recognition, you get the sense that people aren't looking at you, they're looking through you, and you get access to more temptation. So there was a psychologist who participated in the launch of CNN. She later published this paper, Being a Celebrity, a Phenomenology of Fame. 
The experience of being famous was investigated through interviews with 15 American celebrities. And so the study found that in relation to self, being famous leads to loss of privacy, demanding expectations, gratification of ego needs, and symbolic immortality. Being famous leads to wealth, access, temptations, and concerns about family impact. Areas of psychological concern for celebrity mental health include character splitting, mistrust, isolation, and an unwillingness to give up fame. Being in the world of celebrity is a process involving four temporal phases. Love and hate, phase one, addiction, phase two, acceptance, phase three, adaptation, stays four. So being famous is a dopamine rush. Some people can handle it and some people can't. This is me speaking here. So eating chocolate is a dopamine rush. Some people can handle it responsibly. Some people can't. My father, for example, would never eat chocolate because he found it easier to abstain than to be moderate. So abstention is a fine coping mechanism, but you're not getting to the core of the issue of why you cannot be moderate. Abstention is a tactic to deal with symptoms, but the cause of the symptoms lies unaddressed. My therapist once said that when she heard me talk, she imagined an infant sucking on his mother's breast for all he was worth because the infant feared he would never get another feed. So from an evolutionary perspective, we are wired to be ravenous. We're wired to never be satisfied with one sex partner, one slaughtered animal, one berry bush. My father felt he was going to become much more famous than he did. So in 1980, my father got a lot of fame, LA Times, Newsweek, you know, a bunch of publications. Now, when my father and I would watch the Phil Donahue, Phil Donahue show circuit 1983, for example, I was a junior or a senior in high school, he would often remark that he was going to be on that show one day. Well, it never happened. You know, my father achieved a level of fame beyond that of 99.9% .9 of Protestant ministers, but he always wanted more. Now, according to this particular podcast that I was listening to, if you can use your fame to do something useful in the world, you'll handle your fame better. Here are some more excerpts from the academic paper, Being a Celebrity, a Phenomenology of Fame. Most everybody secretly imagines themselves in show business and every day on their way to work, they're a little depressed because they're not. People are sad that they're not famous in America. That's John Waters. Love-hate. Relationship to world themes are revealed as the famous seek effective ways of acclimating to being famous. At first, the experience of becoming famous provides much ego-stroking. Newly famous people find themselves warmly embraced. There is a guilty pleasure associated with the thrill of being admired. And the participants both love the attention and adoration while they question the gratification they experience from fame. I enjoy parts of it, but I hate parts of it too as a general theme. Addiction, the lure of adoration is attractive. It becomes difficult for the person to imagine living without fame. One participant said, it's somewhat of a high, I get off on it. I've been addicted to almost every substance known to man at one point or another, and the most addicting of all of them is fame. Where does the celebrity go when fame passes? Having become dependent on fame, how does one adjust to becoming less famous over time? As the sun sets on my fame, one celebrity said, I'm going to have to learn how to put it in its proper place. That adjustment can be a difficult one. Acceptance. So I think it's like 2006 was 2006, 2007. You know, perhaps that was the, the high point of my fame, according to, you know, various ways that you can, me I think, various ways you can measure it. Okay. Acceptance. As the attention becomes overwhelming and expectations, temptations, mistrust, and familial concerns come to the fore, 
The celebrity resolves to accept fame, including its threatening aspects. You learn to accept it. Celebrities report they come to see that fame is just a wisp. You can, can't build a house on that kind of stuff. So yeah, people are surprised that I have to go out and look a job, you know, go out and try to find a job, even though I'd just been on 60 Minutes. Adaptation. Only after accepting that it comes with the territory can the celebrity adaptively navigate fame's choppy waters. Once you're famous, you don't make eye contact or you keep walking and you just don't hear people calling your name. Adaptive patterns can include reclusiveness, which gives rise to mistrust and isolation. I don't want to go out if I don't feel good about looking forward to meeting anyone or just being nice to people. Mistrust. Eventually, very others who adore the celebrity evoke mistrust. Yes. So in my modest amount of fame that I accumulated, I also accumulated some fans who would then just turn on you like, whoa, where did that come from? Now, sometimes them turning on you had to do with you know, things that you said and done and you, you precipitated it. And other times it mainly comes from, they didn't like the vulnerability of being a fan or something else was going on with them. So there's always a part of you that wonders why they're becoming friendly with you. In an everyday environment, the celebrity wonders, do people like me because of who I am or because of what I do? You find out there are millions of people who like you for what you do. They couldn't care less who you are. With the development of this operating belief system, the conditions are set for grave mistrust and problems in interpersonal relating. So, so I have to admire Dennis Prager. He, he, he became famous in his twenties, but, uh, like, you know, pretty open, you know, fairly open, trusting, uh, welcoming, you know, kind person to complete strangers, just my interpersonal experience and reports from others in the process. I know, I know this one rabbi, who would like ask favors from Dennis Prager to test whether Dennis Prager really was a good person. So another thing that comes with fame is a lot of people want to test you. And uh, Dennis Prager, in this instance, he maintained really good boundaries. He said, no, in the process of losing trust, I've lost some of the innocence I've had about life, about the world and about people. The famous person seeks to discern the true intentions of others. I just think with time and a trained eye, I've learned about certain parasites who want to take advantage of me. The difficulties of such discernment may leave the celebrity confused and alienated and may seek refuge in physical and emotional isolation and becoming more detached. Okay, back to the New Yorker podcast. Really just incredibly revealing. Well, to go back to this question of, you know, sort of the Fox predicament being the Republican Party's predicament right now, I, it does strike me, Evan, that the the panic is not just over money, but it actually is like... The Trump trap is the is the audience is the voters themselves. They've created. Uh, it's not Trump that's even the biggest problem for them. It is their own audience, and it's very indicative to me that basically the strategy for the Fox empire these last two years has been to freeze out Donald Trump. And yet they haven't disavowed sort of that Trumpism. Tucker Carlson is still essentially ranting about the same things that he was ranting about before. They've just transferred their affections almost entirely to Ron DeSantis, who has literally been on hundreds of times on Fox since in the last two years since they've frozen out Donald Trump. And I wonder what you make of that. You know, they're not disavowing this kind of Trumpism because that seems to be what their audience wants. They just want to get rid of the troublesome guy. Yeah. One of the things that is really fascinating to watch, and this has been partly exhumed by reporting in places like the Tampa Bay Times and in Politico, is the process of the wholesale generation of a campaign phenomenon around Ron DeSantis. I mean, if you haven't been following the details, it's, you really have to understand what happened here. I okay. Had someone asked me, what did I think about a Holocaust denial? So I put Holocaust denial into a search engine on my website, found three smart, small blog posts. This one, 
from November 17, 2015, the Holocaust denial mindset. The essence of the Holocaust denial mind is this. You forced us to do this. We never wanted to kill innocents such as women and children, but you gave us no choice with your radical destructive war on everything we hold sacred. Your war with communism, Freudianism, degeneracy, modern art, Weimar Republic, war on Gentile, racial, religious, and national identity. It's like what Gord at my ear said, we can forgive the Arabs for killing our children. We can't forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. We will only have peace with the Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. Now, that's absurd. If you love your children, you'll hate those who threaten your kids. It's not like uh, love and hate are at war with each other. They are just different reflections of the same intense emotion. Why do so many people deny the Holocaust? Blog post from February 9, 2014. I was asked this question by a friend in Australia. I said that people deny the Holocaust because they want to get back at Jews. Imagine your face, your body, and your life had been terribly disfigured by a brutal war with cancer. Now you've staggered back to work. You're trying to get yourself going again. What would be the single most hurtful thing somebody could say to you? To deny that you had cancer and to claim that it was all in your head. So my life was disfigured at age 21 by something that some doctors called chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was essentially bedridden until age 27 and then moderately hobbled after that. Few things felt more hurtful for many years until I became largely inured than people denying the reality of what I had endured and just saying I was lazy. So too with Jews. They've staggered away from the Holocaust, but has left an open wound on the Jewish psyche. To deny the Holocaust is to deny the thing that is most sensitive to many Jews. We all have the ability to wound others. So when we want to inflict pain, we're all pretty good at finding these sensitive points. Now, my friend particularly heard from one South African mate who denied the Holocaust. I said that while most Jews went along with apartheid, most Jews in South Africa, many of the regime's most prominent critics were Jewish, and so you could in part blame the Jews for the fall of apartheid in South Africa. To back up my point that denying the Holocaust was a tactic to get back at Jews, I said that you'll deny deniers. You'll notice that deniers never contain themselves to history. They immediately jump from denying the Holocaust to complain about Jews running the media and the banks and the politicians and the like. So the real beef is not with historical facts about World War II, but with Jews. But why do they deny the Holocaust? Blog post from May 2nd, 2014. People usually ask how instead of why about Holocaust deniers. We ask how can they deny the Holocaust? Most important question is why do they deny the Holocaust? All right, looking at the chat. Colin Liddell says, the North Vietnamese army was made up of troops trained by the French and he's still the Americans lost. Luke Croft says, besides thrill seekers, no young people in the West would join a massive war. Who would care if they start a conscription? There won't be any shame or white feathers. Colin says, It is clear that elite power is a hollow shell in America. Any elite worth its salt maintains basic martial virtues. Luke Cross says the future warfare will be done by private mercenaries, high-tech weapons, and nations of people who still have a strong sense of identity. All right. I've had uh, Matthew Gabriel on the show. He is... PhD student, I think, at London School of Economics in history. And here he's made a video.
Hey guys, History Speaks here. Coming to you from Calcutta, India, actually. I'm doing some research here on British India. I'm all English language research. Don't know any South, South Asian languages. Um, <laughs> I want to make that clear. No expert in India, but um, I'm getting some British India, some documents about the history of British India during the Second World War. I'll probably talk about this research more in the future, but for today, we're going to focus on uh, Holocaust denial. This is the second entry, long time coming. I've been quite busy with my doctoral program and even lazier than I've been busy when I've had free time. Um, but hopefully that'll change. It will change. Uh, forget hopefully it's going to change. Um, especially after March where I have a deadline coming up. But after that should have more time. But anyway, today is going to be the second entry in my series debunking Holocaust denial. And this entry focuses on another problem for deniers, that is the where-did-they-go problem. The where-they-go problem. Now, there are many historical facts that keep devastating Holocaust deniers. As I talked about in the previous video, you've got numerous confessions given voluntarily by perpetrators outside of trial, even if you buy the meme, the fortune meme, that everyone was coerced or their testicles broken at Nuremberg, beaten, I don't know if testicles can be broken exactly, but had their testicles beaten at Nuremberg, um, even if you believe this, numerous Nazis, whether we're talking about or Nazi collaborators, Holocaust collaborators, like Hajime and Husseini writing from uh, Syria, writing his memoirs, and Eichmann talking to friends, Nazi collaborators, before he was captured by the Israelis, Albert Speer in a private letter to a former Belgian resistor. You've got tons of Nazis outside of trial, non-coercive situations, admitting it, saying, yes, policy was extermination, I was involved in extermination, I knew about it. you got endless, in terms of more evidence, just briefly, you got endless streams of wartime documents from top Nazi leaders, contemporaneous documents from Goebbels, Hans Frank, Himmler, all the top dogs, explicitly referring to, you know, recorded remarks from Hitler, explicitly referring to the murder of the Jews, uh, chemical evidence, forensic evidence of gassings, ironically confirmed by the deniers' experiments themselves, experiments obviously escorted by scare quotes that were, and so on. So you got tons of embarrassing problems for Holocaust denial. But perhaps the most devastating thing for them is the disappearance of millions of Jews in Nazi custody during the war, the where-did-they-go problem, in other words. Let me more specifically define the where-they-go problem. Three million Jews disappeared in the Nazi camp system. Uh, the extermination camps and the concentration camps uh, during the uh, Second World War. And we know that this figure of at least three million Jews disappearing in the camp systems, the Kiel and Reinhardt camps and the main Konzentrationslager, um, we know this because we know at least 3.3 million were deported to the camps and that most 300,000 were, uh, 3.3 million Jews were deported to the camps and that most 300,000 Jews were still in the camp system at the end of the war. We know this because they were taken to the displaced persons camps by the Allies. There's a lot of information about them, meaning the survivors, the people who were still in the camps at the end of the war. How do we know the figure of at least 3.3 million Okay, back to my essay from 2014. Why do they deny the Holocaust? So, hating Jews is not socially acceptable in the West today, so those who hate Jews usually speak in code. Groups often use their suffering for political leverage. Jews and blacks, for example, have used the horror of the Holocaust and of slavery to stigmatize any negative assessment of them as a group. So Stephen Steinleit wrote in 2001, for perhaps another generation, an optimistic forecast, Jewish community is thus in a position where it will be able to divide and to conquer and enter into selective coalitions that support our agendas. That America has largely tolerated this dual loyalty, we get a free pass, I suspect, largely over Christian guilt about the Holocaust, makes it no less a reality. So how can they hate us is not the best question for any minority group to ask right now. A better one is why do they hate us? And it's not because we're also wonderful. A tiny number of Jewish leftists have worked to diminish traditional ties to race, religion, and nation to try to make the world safer for marginalized people like themselves. So if you want to stop future Holocaust, you should worry about the American currency because if that crashes, Jews and other minority groups are in trouble. 
hardest thing for minorities to accept is that no people is entirely innocent, including Jews, and the actions of a tiny number of their group have fueled the whirlwind. Adolf Hitler said in 1941, December 1941, I am convinced that there are Jews in Germany who've behaved correctly in the sense that they've invariably refrained from doing injury to the German idea. It's a difficult to estimate how many there are, but what I also know is that none of them has entered into conflict with his co-racialists to defend the Jew German idea against them. Probably many Jews are not aware of the destructive power they represent. Million were deported to the camps. I don't know if that's accurate. Well, first, um, I have a number of sources. There are records from the British Secret Intelligence Service, which broke the Enigma encoding machine and therefore had access to various German administrative documents. And we have, uh, and the documents had access to include a document for the main concentration camp system. These uh, documents show at various points during Holocaust, certainly not all points, but at various points, these documents show the number of people being deported to the camps and also the total number of persons in the camps. And from this data, uh, we can infer that only a small percentage of the Jews being deported to the concentration camps were still living in the camps months, uh, several months after, or a year after, and so on. So after a certain period of time, the Jews had disappeared from the camps. The vast majority of Jews deported to the camps had disappeared from the camps. These uh, decodes make plain. And this requires an explanation. People don't, just don't disappear, right? Why were the vast majority of Jews being deported to the concentration camps, banished from the camp system? This requires an explanation. We have an explanation. The mainstream historians, they were killed. Um, the Nazis and the revisionists, people who aren't Nazis, but are revisionists, need to come up with uh, explanations. In addition to statistics that I mentioned about the main concentration camp system, we also have considerable statistical evidence about the number of Jews deported to the Aktion Reinhardt camps, Treblinka, Sobibor Belzic, um, and Majdanek. About uh, 2 million Jews were deported to, to these camps, and uh, these figures are verified through German deportation statistics, such as those found in the Hoopla telegram and uh, the Korher report. So we know that about 2 million Jews were deported to the Reinhardt camps, maybe you know, a couple hundred thousand less, perhaps at least like 1.7 million. We can go with that number if deniers wish. But we know that 1.7 million Jews at least were deported to the Aktion Reinhardt camps, and almost all these Jews vanished from the Reinhardt camps. A few thousand may have been uh, deported from the uh, Reinhardt camps uh, to the main concentration camp system for forced labor, but this doesn't solve the deniers' basic problem. And that problem is that about 3.3 million Jews were deported to Aktion Reinhardt and uh, the main concentration camps, but only 300,000 were in the camps at war's end. The problem is the vast majority of Jews, literal millions Nazis, disappeared without a trace in the Nazi camp systems. And no explanation has been offered for this dis the disappearance of these millions of Jews, the vast majority of Jews, couldn't leave, who had no freedom of movement, who were totally under Nazi control. No explanation has been offered with any evidence for their disappearance, for their vanishing other than... Okay, back to the greatest Luke Ford blog posts from 2022. Process liberals versus ends conservatives. So from a realist, a la, a la, John Mearsheimer perspective, the primary purpose of a nation state is to survive. So that's ends oriented rather than process oriented. From the perspective of Jewish law, a Jew may violate any Jewish law but three to survive, to save his life. All right, this sounds ends oriented. So perhaps the more nationalist your country, the, men, the more ends-oriented it will be. And perhaps the more liberal your country, the more process-oriented it will be. So in Judaism, there is a dispute about the possible existence of an extra-halakhic, meta-halakhic morality. So halakha, halakhic, refers to Jewish law. So is there a plane of morality above Jewish law, or is it right and wrong simply, is right and wrong simply determined by... God's pronouncements and God's law. So is there a right and left difference with regards to means and ends, or is this more of a mainstream versus extremist difference, right, where the mainstream is more process-oriented and the extremists more ends-oriented? So the chant, no justice, no peace, is not process-oriented. It is ends-oriented.
unless you give us the ends we want, we will not allow you peace. So Black Lives Matter, Antifa, Oath Keepers, and Proud Boys don't seem terribly hamstrung by concerns about process. So Carl Schmidt became popular starting in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and he was embraced by the left because of his powerful critiques of liberalism. So liberalism, as opposed to left leftism, seems to put process as the highest value. Seems to. For example, the 2020 election was valid from a liberal perspective because it followed legal processes and all challenges were rejected by the system, including the courts. On the other hand, many conservatives see a corrupt process to change voting laws by fiat. So you had people like Mark Zuckerberg lavishly funding attempts to make voting easier for Democratic voters. And they saw that these fiats were carried out by liberals who control almost every major institution in this country, with the partial exceptions of the parts of the military and business. And conservatives see that these changes were generally not voted on by legislatures. So philosopher tells me there is a thing called procedural liberalism, which was a left thing in California when the left controlled the courts. But it is usually thought of differently in the thought of Michael Oakeshott, for example, the distinction is between ends-oriented and rules-oriented regimes. Same with Max Weber, where it is procedural versus substantive justice, which is associated with socialism, and common good people nowadays are on the left. I think the Constitution and constitutionalism in the United States is generally focused on the idea that we are a rules-based order, and against the idea of a common good is usually used to attack constitutionalism. So yes, to provide for ourselves versus common good provision is a rules-based model. German basic law is much more collectivist. It assigns legal status to political parties to participate in the formation of the will of the people. Right, that's pretty substantive rather than procedural. Common good thinking is a Catholic thing. So Adrian Vermeule, political philosopher, is hot for administrative discretion. So are conservatives more likely to argue that sometimes the ends justify the means? Well, I think extremists are more likely to argue that uh, ends justify means. Conservatives would be rooted in reality in the sense that it is true that at times the ends are more important than the means. Right? Populism is not process-oriented, the philosopher says. In the original forms, it was process-oriented and constitutionalist, but there was a difference between southern populists who are constitutionalists and northern populists who are less so. The Schmittians in the U.S., such as at Harvard, Adrian Vermeule, ridiculed the naive faith in the constitution of conservatism in favor of discretionary power by bureaucrats. So Trumpism is not process-focused. Michael Anton is not process-focused as much as ends-focused. So the more individualist the society, the more process-oriented it must be to work. The more fractured and multiracial the society, the more process-focused it must be to function. Normally in American history, the argument that the system was corrupt came from the left, and if the system is corrupt, then you have to aim for higher changes than process. Now the argument that the system is corrupt seems to come primarily from the right. The more strongly you argue that there's something rotten in the system, the less likely you are to place process as the highest good. So what is the purpose of the United States from a liberal perspective? To decrease oppression and ignorance and to allow for ever more human flourishing by following the processes established by our leading institutions, the courts, the professions, the bureaucracies, educational system, and the media. Now, does America have a greater purpose than just following process? So the preamble to the United States Constitution states, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, 
provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. So usually following the legal processes will be the most effective way to provide for the common defense and to promote the general welfare, but not always. So I think conservatives and radicals of all types are at ease with the reality of states of exception. Now, I wonder if the idea that the United States is here primarily to provide for ourselves and for our posterity is now more of a conservative perspective. Because for conservatives, America is not primarily an idea nor an experiment. It is our way of protecting ourselves and our posterity <clears throat> from a dangerous world. So our safety is more important than following procedures, and the Constitution is not a death warrant. So I love my family. I love my friends. I love my community. There are things more important to me than process. The enemy is he who threatens the people I love. Right, back to this uh, New Yorker podcast. Now, for instance, that was produced by the Freedom of Information Act. This is about communication between the Ron DeSantis operation and Fox News quoted one of the people inside Fox News as saying to Ron DeSantis's people, quote, we see him as the future of the party. Now, you might say, OK, well, that's just, you know, the, the, the journalist trying to get this guy on the air. But if you actually add up all of the different times that he went on the air, you know, he was on Hannity eight times, Tucker Carlson six times. And in fact, one of the unforgettable details is that he appeared on Laura Ingram's show seven times, which is the same number of times that he met with his own lieutenant governor, according to his public calendar. So if you want to understand his priorities, it was Fox, Fox, Fox. And if okay, you want to for- understand Rupert Murdoch's priorities, it's DeSantis, DeSantis, DeSantis. And you can see that in all of his media properties. So you can see in the New York Post, they're calling him the future, possibly. Remember, that was their one pun. And there, when when Trump decided to announce his bid for re-election, um, they belittled him as Florida man says he's running for president, um, you know, and, and stuck it in like page somewhere stuck inside the, the newspaper. Um, so, you know, they're doing their best. But actually, I don't know if any of you have seen the film clips. It was quite funny um, where one of the Fox hosts um, is on location in DeSantis's hometown and oh, at, at, a, at a diner and goes around and asks everybody in hopes of showing this incredible boom for DeSantis that, that Fox <laughs> wants to portray. And they go from table to table saying, who are you favoring for 2024? And one diner after the next says, Trump, 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 Trump. Finally, the you know, interviewer goes up to a woman wearing a DeSantis T-shirt, hopefully thinking, well, at least here's one for him, and asks. And she says, yeah, maybe DeSantis, maybe Trump. You know, so <laughs> whether, the, whether Fox can really create this kind of wave for someone is really going to be an interesting sort of political science question because they... No, they can't. All right. Fox can ride the wave. They can't create the wave. All right. I can't create waves. I can ride waves. Right. Reality is we either ride reality or it rides us. You know, they're, they couldn't be trying harder. This gets to something that, Susan, you raised earlier, which I think is kind of the subtext of this whole topic, which is about the the way in which this phenomenon, the sort of Fox effect on the viewer, just jumped the boundaries of the laboratory and kind of wandered out like this Frankenstein out into our political lives. There was a moment, actually, kind of a, a, a prescient note that Dana Perino wrote to one of the uh, a Republican strategists in which she said, and I'm reading here, this day of reckoning was going to come at some point where the embrace of Trump became an albatross we can't shake right away, if ever. So they knew what was happening, and yet they were either unwilling or, un- or incapable of stopping it. 
And with that nice musical interlude, today's show comes to an end. We either ride 40 or 40 rides us. God forbid.